Hello, you lovely people. Now, today's guest is the fabulous John Scott. And when I say fabulous, well, you're about to see what I mean. John has not just one, but several next chapters. He told me he started off at school as the class clown, but then he went from being a teacher to, wait for it, a Hollywood costume maker. Then, to a fashion expert on national TV and his latest chapter now, having his own sewing channel. John worked on films like Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, Tomb Raider and let's not forget a few Bond films too. He was the fashion expert on ITV's This Morning for 10 years and now he has a following of tens of thousands of people on The John Scott Show and I think you'll see why. John's mantra is don't ever be where you don't want to be. Well, I loved being with him every minute of this interview and I hope you will too. Hello and welcome to The Next Chapter by Ellie Barker. As I start my next chapter from journalist to author, I speak to incredible people who have already started theirs in the hope it might help you think about your next chapter or, at the very least, you might just enjoy the conversation. In John's case, he gives us a little glimpse behind the scenes of film sets and from a man who definitely knows all the secrets, well, who wants to miss that? So come on, here he is, John Scott. I'm just going to dive in. So, John Scott, welcome to the next chapter with Ellie Barker. What a treat to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, the treat is all mine, let me tell you. It's a cold, chilly morning and it's lovely. Well, I can see you and you can't see me, but it's lovely to chat to you. It's what's known in the business, John, isn't it, as a technical issue. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's okay. But we'll, 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 we're both professionals. We'll get over it. John can see my grotty shelves. I'm sure he's living in the lap of luxury. <laughs> oh, if only you could see. I'll take a picture and send it to you later. <laughs> okay, right. So I'm going to start straight away, John. We're going to go in. As you know, we structure. I structure this a, a bit like a book. So we start off with the prologue. So really all about your beginning, the upbringing of the uh, lovely John Scott. So you, your dad was in the RAF. So you spent your childhood, you were moving around every couple of years, but you ended up in Chester where you did your O-levels and A-levels. That's right. What happened was, is there were four, I'm one of four children. I've got an older brother, Mike, who's a doctor, and then me, and then the twins younger than me. And basically every two years, my dad got re- when my mum and dad first got married, they travelled all over the world and had, you know, fantastic travels and everything. As soon as they got married and had children, my mum said, I don't want to travel anymore. So we, every two years, we would be stationed somewhere different in the United Kingdom. And when we got to uh, about, I think I must have been about 10 or 11, my mum said, I'm bored of travelling. So she was from Chester. So we bought a house in Chester we all lived there. My older brother went to boarding school because he was about to take exams and everything. And um, so we were based in Chester. And my dad travelled to wherever he had to travel to each week. And what kind of student were you, John? Uh, lazy. Oh, I, I no, but if I look back now, if I look back now, I think I should have tried harder. The trouble is, you see, oh, this is very, I'm getting very personal straight away. My Please. old brother was the favourite child. Right. And there's no, there's no hiding from that. That's not me being theatrical. He was definitely the favourite child. So everything that the rest of us did were in, in compared to what he'd done. So I kind of went through a phase where, oh, I don't really care. Yeah. You know, let, let, let Mike be the brilliant child and I'll just kind of follow along in my own footsteps and everything. I was quite chubby. I wasn't very athletic at all. 
Uh, and I was like the class clown. I mean, I can sort of imagine sort of knowing you um, as I do. But do you think as well, does that come from moving around a lot as well? And then, like you say, you're in the, you're, you've got an older brother. Do you think that's why you were such a such a clown? I think so, because because I was uh, uh, definitely too. Uh, well, I'm a Gemini, so I've got two personalities. But the personality at school was completely different to the personality at home. At home, I was quite morose and moody and quiet and didn't say very much. But at school, I was very, very loud. Did you find that exhausting at times, being like that, being so loud at school? No, but I do now. Yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> but, but, um, but, but no, no, I didn't. I didn't really. I think it was, it's, it's a survival thing, isn't it? Is to, to survive at school, I had to. I wasn't clever. I wasn't sporty. I wasn't any of those. So I had to be the kind of noisy funny one and I was in I enjoyed it as well I'm not saying I was doing it because I felt bad about anything I enjoyed being the center of attention yeah I can I can understand that as well but so at that stage fashion wasn't so much on the radar you wanted to be either this I had to smile at this John a butler or a telephonist a telephonist yeah you see my mum at the time when we went back to Chester my mum going back 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 when my mum was growing up she trained in secretarial school in Chester and then went to work at Browns of Chester which was like the Harrods of the north as it were it was the most beautiful shop so when we moved back there she was desperate to go back and work there and the only job that was there to begin with was on the in the telephonist room and it was one of those old-fashioned ones that you see on telephone girls whatever so there'd be a row of ladies all sitting there with uh, big ear trumpets on so so your mum was very much into fashion was she um she was a she was a model when we were younger wow. but she 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 liked her she did like her fashion she had an eclectic taste but she did like her fashion wow okay so i suppose there were some kind of seeds being sown perhaps but then you wanted you went on went to breton hall college and you trained as a teacher yeah english basically one was we were at school and it got to a certain stage where they were like, you've got to go and do careers. And I said, I have no idea. I couldn't go in saying I want to be a butler or a telephonist. But <laughs> okay, I, kind of yeah, I mean, to... that's great. <laughs> well, I just, I just thought I thought it would have been great fun. But, you know, <laughs> you know how much butlers get paid? How much do if they I'd get paid? If I'd gone down the butler's route, I'd be so rich today. You know what? But anyway, that. that's by the by. Uh... But anyway, what was your question again? Yeah, so, so you went on, you started, you, well, oh, you trained as a teacher. Yes, so I went to the careers evening and they, or careers teacher, and they said, well, what subjects, it was when we were choosing our O-levels, and they said, what O-levels, what, what, just do subjects. I think they'd kind of written me off at this point. They just went, oh, just do the ones that you enjoy doing. So I just picked the subjects that I liked, and then, and then they said, oh, well, the best job you could do with that is be a teacher. So how did that go, John? I absolutely love being in the classroom with the kids. And the, my favourite classes were ones... Of, I, I We didn't have this in our school, but in, in, in the school they had kids at 13 and 11 that they'd already decided weren't going to be doing any exams. They were the non-examination class. And they were kind of the kids that they'd written off right from the beginning. Right. And my class... They were naughty. They were the naughty, rebellious kids with personality who were just kind of not they didn't behave in normal classes so they were put in the because I did drama and English is my thing and um and literally I had the best time teaching those kids and we had the best relationship I loved I loved teaching my non-examination uh, kids mm. but the thing that put me off being a teacher was you'd go to the staff room 
And you'd pick up a mug and then go, oh, don't use that mug. That's Mrs. Edwards' mug. Oh, don't sit there. That's Mr. Such and Such's chair. And I just thought, I can't spend 45 years sitting in a staff room with all these rules. I just want to be out. I just want to be outside in the playground with the kids. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because that's kind of a bit like the pupil you were as well, wasn't it? You were saying you were very much the comedian at school. Yes. And then, so you were, you kind of were like that ideal teacher that you probably would have wanted, really. Well, yeah, I suppose so. Cause, and also, I just, I just felt so much for them that somebody had decided at 13 that they were going to, they weren't, weren't they were useless sort of thing. Mm. And I didn't really come in. I mean, I got my O levels and my A levels. So I actually, I can't be that stupid, but mm. I didn't come into my own academically till I was about 13 or 14. Mm. And then I suddenly realized the importance of it. So these kids that were in those classes, they won't ever have had the opportunity to even redeem themselves. They were just classed as non-examination kids and that was it until they left school at 15 or 16. But it goes mm-hmm. to show, doesn't it? It just, I mean, that's awful that these children were written off. Exactly, exactly. Totally, exactly. It's like I say to all my nieces and nephews, so many people I know who've got law degrees but they're now actors or fashion designers or mm. costume designers or something like that. It's not about what you're training about. It's about the learning about yourself, really. Mm, I totally agree. I do. Now, you mentioned the word costume. Okay, that takes us nicely on to your first chapter now john i'm going to cheat a little bit with you because you've actually got two next chapters if i'm honest you've got a few chapters but we're going to yeah and i've still got some to write well i know i mean there's definitely going to be a sequel to this one um (laughs) but so your first chapter now i'm going to get this right because in our in our notes and our email exchange you were quite right to tell me off here i described you as a costume designer but no 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 you went on to become a costume maker and that's very very different Yes. So what happened was, is I was doing my final teaching practice and I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher. I knew I didn't want to be that to be my career. And my friend Anne, when I was younger, I'd gone on to drama courses, which is a a, a summer drama course in Anglesey to a kind of, um, I don't want to say institution. It was HMS, uh, it was called HMS Menai or something like that. Anyway, it's a little, it's a little kind of um, place where people used to go and stay and had dormitories and everything like that. And you go on a six week residential drama course for the whole summer holidays and uh, the lady who did the costumes on that was called Anne and she was just doing something for the BBC at the time and she was flying off here there and everywhere filming around the world and I said oh I quite fancy doing some of that and she said well I went to Wimbledon School of Art she said it's a brilliant college and uh, the parties are amazing and it's a really really lovely experience so I just wrote to Wimbledon School of Art having never done any sewing or anything at all wow and uh i at wimbledon they did two courses they did a costume design degree course and they also did a cop what they called a costume interpretation course the degree course was a three-year course and as i'd already done three years trained to be a teacher i thought i don't want to do another three years so i did the costume interpretation course which was making everything so you'd learn corsetry millinery everything you need to know about clothes from caveman through to modern day we crammed it into that two years of um of of study at at wimbledon school of art i mean the thing is wimbledon school of art was in those days was a private college and you had to pay to go to it 
and they used to take on too many people at the beginning of the year. And when I'd gone for my interview, I found out later that I was one of the people that they thought, oh, he's never sewn before. He's never done it before. He can come and then we'll get rid of him at Christmas. And of course, that never happens, I think. And I ended up, well, I don't want to say one of their most successful students, but one of their most successful students. Well, you absolutely are. Again, we're going to go on to that. But you obviously loved what you were doing then. That was the whole point. You found something that you really, really loved. Yes, it was. Uh, well, I think what it is, is I like a challenge. And I got then all the, I was the only boy on the course to start with. And all the girls had all got some form of, some of them had degrees in sewing. Some of them had HNDs in f- fashion ma- pattern making and things like that. Every single person had some form of background in sewing or whatever. And I didn't. So and I'll tell you how cruel it was. When we first went, every, almost every day, there'd been marks put up on a pin board of how well everybody did that day. And I was always at the bottom until we did wig making. And of course, everybody, not one person in the class had done wig making for. So we all started off at the level, at level plane sort of thing. And the wig teacher, Dana, was fantastic. She looked like a big drag queen. And um, <laughs> We used to do wig knotting every Monday, and every Monday I'd be top of the class. Wow. So that kind of spurred me on because it was this challenge that one day I might be as good as all these other people. Yeah. So, And I'm not saying it was horrible. <clears throat> I loved it, but it was really, really, really hard work. So that was for two years, and then you started yeah. to work in theatres. Yes, yeah, so my first job was that what happened was at Wimbledon you didn't get a, you didn't actually get an official qualification. The, the Wimbledon School of Art was so well-renowned that you could just leave and go, oh, yes, I went to Wimbledon. And that would open so many doors for you because it was a really, really was the top uh, course like that. I mean, if you think there were very few courses like it, but it was the top course. Mm. So uh, what Wimbledon told us to do is during the um, last term, we were heading to do our final um, exhibitions sort of thing. But they said, if you get offered a job, then take it. So, you know, like one person went off to work at Farnham. Uh, my friend Dulcie, who you know, I she did. went off to work at Stoke. So they all they all went off to different jobs before we actually finished the course. Anyway, I kept saying, oh, I don't want that job. Oh, no, I don't want that job. And they kept saying to me, the college kept saying, John, you're not going to get a job at this rate because you're turning them all down. Anyway, that we saw an advert in the stage. In those days, we used to look at the back of the stage for, for adverts. And there was a job going as a a pattern cutter, costume pattern cutter, at Theatre Cluid in Mould, which was half an hour away from my mum and dad. And I knew that when I left Wimbledon School of Art, I would have to move back home until uh, I, I kind of knew where my career was going. So I kind of thought, well, if I get that job at Theatre Cluid, that means I can take everything home, live at my mum and dad's, do the show at Theatre Cluid, and then find a job. So I applied for the job at Theatre Cluid. Dulcie made me, in those days, I used to wear bow ties all the time. Dulcie made me a gold glittery bow tie to wear for my interview. <laughs> and I, I got the job at Theatre Cluid. So That's that was amazing. my very first job. So again, you perhaps, you know, you were turning it down the other ones. It wasn't really so much you being rebellious. It was more that you knew you're being practical. You needed to go back and live with your mum and dad. Yeah, and also I didn't fancy, you know, I worked for a, lady, a fabulous lady called Jane Cowood when I was a student because obviously I had to... I had to work to pay for the course and everything and she uh, made uh, all the costumes for the royal ballet and the festival ballet and mm. and and i also worked with another called fran bristow who did costumes for opera for the english national opera and the royal, royal opera house and everything so i did but they all worked from home and all the jobs that were coming up were working with freelancers in their house and i kept thinking i don't want to just be in one room with one other person i need to be where there's lots of people so i kind of turned them down because I didn't want to be sitting in their dining room sewing tutus. Yeah, well, I can, well I, now you put it like that, I, I can understand where you're coming from. But you ended yeah. up then, you went off to New York. 
Well, yes. Yeah, so what happened was I worked at, I was supposed to go to um, uh, Theatre Clued for one show. The day I started, the show got cancelled. So they went, oh, you might as well just stay on. So I stayed on for a year as their pattern cutter, which, you know, there was a supervisor and then me, the pattern cutter, and then my friend Diana was the assistant. And I did a year there. And then a job came up at Theatre Royal York. Um, and the reason I took that is because they were about to do Seven Brides for Seven Brothers to be on at York and then go on a, a, a national and international tour. And I quite fancied doing the costumes for Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. <laughs> and then I stayed at York for two shows. It rained every single day. And I thought, well, I can't stay here. So I then got a job at the Mercury Theatre in Colchester, stayed there for four years. But we used to go to a costume hire company called 20th Century Costumes. So we didn't make everything. If we were doing a thing with men's suits, we didn't make men's suits. We rented those. So I was going to a place called 20th Century Costumes. While I was there they kept saying, oh, we need a new production manager. And I was terrified about moving to London. Anyway, they made me so... This is how many years ago. They made me such a good offer. They offered me £12,000 a year. And I was like, wow. oh, what am I going to do with all that money? Yes. £12,000 a year. <laughs> uh, and so I took the job there as their production manager. And literally, within a couple of months, they sent me to New York to open and run their New York office. Oh, my goodness <clears> me. <throat> Did you love the theatres? Did you love working in the theatres? Oh, it's the best job ever. Is it? It really, really... And you get paid no money working mm. in theatre at all. Um, but it's, it's hard work because you spend the day making costumes for the next show coming up. And then you're also at night time, you're then dressing the show that's actually on at the moment. So it's a constant, you have to, you have to love it to do it because you got, you got paid ne next to nothing doing it. But it was just, if, if, you, could, if, if you could work in theatre and get paid a decent wage, then I'd, be, I'd still be there. But it's just, it's just, I mean, you have to move on basically. And the, the job at 20th Century, I couldn't really turn it down. What is it about the theatre? Because actors talk about this as well. Is it the is it the atmosphere? Is it the live audience? Is it the the history? Is it all of that? I think it, I think it's everything. It's very it's a th working in a theatre is a very very special pla uh, special place. And also, this is what's so bad at the moment. When you think about, and I'm not going to get all political about it, mm. but during lockdown, those people who bring so much joy to other people mm. and not and they've all you know what I mean they've all lost their livelihood and it'll be nearly a year now won't it and they've all lost their livelihoods and that makes me so sad um being in a theater there is something it doesn't matter whether you're doing a pantomime whether you're doing a musical whether you're doing a very a, 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 you know very strong strict straight play or something like that there is something about help get, mixing with the actors and the rest of the crew getting a show on working up to first night the exhilaration of first night and then um, after that, we then let that show go because that show will then run itself. We'll also obviously do the maintenance and the dressing and everything on it. But then we then the next day, we have a read through for another play, which could be completely different. And we start on the costumes for that. And you can do anything from caveman to modern day. You know mm. what I mean? And I don't like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't like to be, not institutionalised, that's the wrong word, but mm. you know what I mean? Like Pigeonholed and caveman, yeah. then you could be doing Elizabethan, then you could be doing shopping for modern clothes, and then you could be doing panto, which is all fantasy. And So you mean it's something different all the time. Mm, absolutely, I totally understand and agree. So then you were headhunted by ITV. I was at 20th Century Costumes. What that place was, it was in, it was in London, obviously I then went to New York. I then came back from... Um, New York to, to my job in London after after a while and um, what 20th Century did is they actually had original clothes from 
well, it was the 18, about the 1890s onwards, and they also made costumes. So when ITV did series one and series two of Poirot, they came to 20th century costumes and they had all of David Suchet's and Hugh Fraser's, all the principal costumes made. Miss Lemon's clothes were all original 1930s clothes. And I was the production manager. So the designers would come in and say, right, we need this suit made for Hugh. We need you to find some really lovely Prince of Wales fabric or we need to find, we want some really lovely shirting. So I would then source all of the fabrics and the, 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 the for the shirts and the ties and the suits and everything like that, they'd come in, they'd then choose them. We'd then get our tailors to make the suits and then we'd do the fittings. The actor would come in and we'd do the fittings in, in 20th century. And then we didn't have anything to do with the filming. Once they were finished, we then sent them off to the designers and they took them onto set and did all the filming. And it was after doing two series of Poirot whilst working at 20th Century Costumes, they then approached me to leave 20th Century and go to ITV. Well, it was a production company called Carnival Films who made it for ITV. They approached me and said, would you would you leave 20th Century and come and work for us? It wasn't a full-time job. It was just the series three of Poirot. Right, but you did it though. You left, you oh, sort of, you took the risk. Oh, well, it's so weird, right? So I went down and said, uh, there was one of my favourite people at 20th Century was Pam, who worked in the returns department. <laughs> so when people finish with their renting, they send them all back and Pam checks them, would check them all back in, make sure they weren't damaged, make sure they sent everything back. And I'd go down there for my kind of respite, you know, during mm. the day, because she was like so gorgeous. Mm. And I went down one day and I went, oh, Pam, I don't know what to do. I, I, and I was, I was getting paid, like I said, £12,000 a year at... at um, a 20th century and I said Pam I don't know what to do they've offered me this nine month contract but that nine month contract's only 48,000 pounds and she just looked at me she went you what you what you're not anyway she was because she just thought I was the maddest person in the world but I was at that point was thinking oh this is a full-time job yeah and security. what happens in nine months time if I'm rubbish at being a costume supervisor and never work again and she went you're getting four years wages in nine months she said you could easily you know even if you don't get a job for three years you've got the money there and I kind of thought oh she's right yes she was so so I took it I just accepted and never looked back after that my goodness so yeah you say you never look back now listeners listen to this what you worked on so you worked on it I'm not going to do it in order but three James Bond films yes I I still can't get over this four weddings and a funeral we're going to go back on this Notting Hill Tomb yeah. Raider. I mean yeah. that. I mean, I still can't. So you worked on four weddings and a funeral when really nobody had any idea what kind of success and like cult film that that was about to become. But so so after I done Poirot, I then did a couple of Catherine Cookson's, and then and then word of mouth, and then I did a series called Big Battalions, which I loved doing because it was so adventurous. We went to Ethiopia, and then. This is how I believe that the, the stars work or the universe works and everything. So the, pro- the production manager or the, one of the producers of the thing that I was on in Ethiopia was at a dinner party and there was a lady producer there saying, oh, I'm just about to do the new Robin Williams film and I can't get a costume supervisor. And he said, oh, you have to meet John Scott. He's just done my job in Ethiopia. So I then came home and went for an interview with a lady called Mary Richards, who was like one of the top, top production managers and national producer in the film industry. And I went from meeting with her to then do a film with Robin Williams. And that again, went around the world and everything. So that was my foray into films. And then it just kind of went from film to film to film to film to film. 
and um, and then eventually uh, I did uh, Four Weddings Funeral. But but the thing about Four Weddings was I was already quite established as a costume supervisor because I'd done a Bond. Had I done a Bond film then? I can't remember. But I was quite established. <laughs> and basically, we we filmed uh, Four Weddings Funeral in six weeks on a tiny, tiny, tiny budget, and we all took less money than we would normally take. But the script was so fantastic. I read the script out loud at Shepherd's Studios, and I was laughing to myself. In, and you normally that normally doesn't happen, does it, when you read a script? You don't normally laugh out loud at the funny bits and everything. And I was increased over reading the script, and I thought, oh, I've just got to do this. So I took that job thinking, well, it's only six weeks. It's not paying me very much money, but it'll be good fun. And it was one of the best films I've ever worked on. Goodness. So, okay, so going back there, first of all, Robin yeah. Williams, can I ask you this? Um, what was he like to work with? Adorable, adorable, adorable. So... Um, he was a real people person and um, within literally within weeks of starting filming he knew and, there's, and you, you know on a film set there mm. are hundreds and hundreds of people he knew everybody's name mm. he knew uh, not everything about everybody but he knew enough to, to be to show I, this is one of the things I learned very early on is like if you're not, if you're not nice to people but if you show people an interest it then mm. blossoms it can blossom thing anyway he was so i was so impressed with the fact that he knew all of us and he knew all of our names and then within weeks could do impressions of all of us <laughs> do you know mean say so come onto the wardrobe bus and be me and I'd be, everyone would like laugh and he'd make jokes about it and i'd be like i don't find that very funny thank you very much <laughs> but you know what i mean it was he was just absolutely adorable yeah i can imagine and then four weddings and a funeral again am i bearing in mind this is produced by the um heavy flower pop uh productions which is just me john so i can't afford any big suits um but <laughs> but, <laughs> but um four weddings and a funeral i mean so hugh grant wasn't particularly well known then was he he, he wasn't particularly neither was richard curtis who wrote it and we no. had so because normally on a film what you do is you ring up and you say oh hi it's john scott i'm supervising the new bond film can I have, and the designer houses throw things at you. Or this is how it used to be. Yeah. I obviously don't do films anymore, so I, it, I know it's different now. But people, so I was ringing up people saying, oh, hello, it's John Scott here. And they go, oh, hi, John. I said, I'm working on four weddings and a funeral. And people go, what kind of name's that for a film? And I said, it's written by Richard Curtis. Oh, who's he? Well, he's done Mr. Bean and Vicar of Dibley. Oh, he's television. Very, you know, kind of very disparate. And we couldn't get anything. We could hardly get anything for free at all so it was done on a tiny 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 budget and but then he started getting all the names you know then he, you know because christian scott thomas and hugh grant and everybody like that and suddenly it got a little bit of ethos but nobody nobody knew how successful it was going to be and can i just point out tv rocks only because i work in it yes. um so you worked on that and then you went on to notting hill as well well, well, what happened was, because we'd all worked on four weddings and a funeral and had a brilliant, I have to say, the, the camaraderie within the crew was amazing, because it was only a small crew mm. and everybody knew, every, nobody was working for their normal wage. So it was actually, you know, we were all there because we wanted to be there. When the, the same production company did Notting Hill, Duncan Kenworthy was the top producer, and he said, I want the whole same crew that I had on four weddings. If we can get everybody, let's time it so we can get everybody on Notting Hill as well. Yeah. So it was like we, we 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 just basically the whole lot of us just moved. For, what was it a couple of years later? But we all just moved into bigger premises. We were at uh, Shepperton Studios. We got more money, and of course by then it was like we're doing the new Richard Curtis film, and everybody wanted to be involved, sort of thing. Because they saw how successful not uh, at four weddings had been. But you had a new member. You had Julia Roberts. Yes, you did. So you had big, you had like big names. And did that Cute. when you when you 
are working on something like that does the whole I can't imagine what that must be like because it sort of does it become a bit surreal at some points well it I tell you what I, I can put it into perspective right when I was working with Robin Williams right because I, because I was in work mode I never ever got nervous about meeting people because you're in work mode so I'm a costume supervisor I know what I'm doing I know what the designer wants so we go into meetings and the first few meetings with big actors are very much you know very formal and everything like that because if you think about it what other job do you do when they walk into a room you've never met them before they have to get undressed so you can measure mm. them do you know what I mean it's things like that but um so it didn't become surreal it was just like I'd get excited about it before and but then because the professionalism would kick in but while I was on uh being human I went to visit my friend Helen who was the makeup artist on Coronation Street and I was in the I was in the makeup room in Coronation Street and all the cast members that were on filming that day were coming in going oh hello hello I couldn't speak I could not because you recognize me I was tongue-tied you're starstruck these are Coronation Street people these are Coronation Street these are famous not and, and Helen was saying but you're working with Robin Williams and here you are not being able to speak to Emily Bishop or Rita and things like that. And then another story <laughs> like that is I was on Bond film and my friend Mr. Graham was doing the makeup on the Spice Girls film. Now, there was no bigger Spice Girls fan than me. So uh, imagine this. I'm at, we went to Shepparton Studios. We are at Frogmore Studios and we were doing a James Bond film. My whole office had Spice Girls posters on every wall. On my desk, I had Spice Girls pencil case, Spice Girls pencils, Pat Spice Girls um, pencil sharpeners, everything. So I'd have meetings in my office with like the designer and the producers. We'd be talking about multi, multi-million pound budgets and they're sitting surrounded by Spice Girls. <laughs> ginger, ginger anyway, Spice. I, I, I went on to the Spice Girls set when they were doing their film and I they all came to talk to me and I was and my friend Mr. Graham said well, this is John he's working on the Bond film and they were all so excited and I was like I can't believe I'm standing here with the Spice Girls and I cannot even <laughs> open my mouth to, to put a sentence together. Did you speak to any of them? Well the thing is right so I met them all we spent the day together and by the end of the day we were all we got on really really well and then I got invited to the rap party and I told my friend Dulcie that um uh, that i i knew the spice girls you see and they were like yeah she said, yeah of course you do anyway for some reason both she and i were at the rap party dulcie must have made some costumes for it or something via angels where she was working anyway so we're at the party and i was like oh yeah i know the spice girls and as i said that baby spice and ginger spice came round the corner and went john how are you and they threw their arms around me and like dulcie's face was a picture when she just thought <laughs> you know because she thought i was like oh yeah i know spice girls but don't really but it was so oh, nice amazing. anyway then of course when i was on this morning many years later the spice girls used to come on as their individual people so it was like kind I of I, I, I got carried on knowing them as it were in the future oh uh, okay so well look that again takes us nicely let's move on now Yes. To your first next chapter. So you were working on, I believe, the, a Bond film and the clothes show, which we remember well, sent yes. Tim Vincent, who I Tim also Vincent. remember well, sent yes. him along to interview you. Yes. So what they did was, obviously, the clothes show was a show that went out on a Sunday afternoon. So they sent him out to do a report on the costumes for a James Bond film. And we, he interviewed me and I took him through all the different things. And at the end... He put on a tuxedo and he said, oh, God, look at me. I think I'd be a brilliant James Bond film. What do you think, John? And I just said, as a John Scottism, oh, I'd rather see you in a wetsuit. Because right next door to the tuxedo section in the costume department were all of Pierce's um, 
wetsuits and everything. Anyway, they used that as a main feature, and I became known as the boy that wanted to dress Timmy Vincent in a wetsuit. So it kind of <laughs> became a kind of uh, industry joke sort of thing. Yeah, well, I can imagine. But then, so people were watching, and then you got the call from none other than uh, the Lorraine Kelly show. Yes, so, yes, exactly. So then what happened was I did that, that went out and I thought, oh, I look so fat. I look dreadful. I should have worn a different shirt and all that sort of rubbish. <laughs> then I got I, then I got a call from uh, uh, Johnny, Johnny. Oh, my brain is dreadful. I think McCune. That's it. Johnny yeah. McCune rang me up and said, we're doing a makeover on a man who wants to propose to his girlfriend. So we want to dress him like James Bond. And then whilst I was there, I they wanted me to take some of the... Um, costumes from the bond film from the bond girl costumes so we did like a little fat we, we started off the makeover while he had his hair cut and his face done i then did a whole fashion item with lorraine and models wearing some of the bond clothes and then at the end of the show we revealed his new look and everything so that was my first foray into the makeover show on television so you'd gone from dressing james the real james bond you you know dressed julia roberts you'd done you know robin williams then you dress more sort of should we say less famous people but do you do you see like there must be so much pleasure basically we're all human underneath aren't we so we're all we yes. all feel uncomfortable we all feel vulnerable um, often like you say then you never know what to wear you think oh god i look awful in that what you'd used and you'd found on these sort of hollywood films could you use that in the same way to help people who aren't in hollywood films okay so first of all when you work with hollywood stars 99.9 percent .9 of them have got perfect bodies Right. I mean, they have to have because they're going to be on the, the girl. I, I say perfect. I, when I say perfect, I mean what peer pressure says perfect. Yes. Because I don't, you know what I mean. I'm not being rude saying if you're not a size zero, then you have no. a perfect body. So, so the, the thing about going on the Rain Kelly show was it was a different challenge. Like I said earlier, I love doing different challenges, and of course, I'd never done live TV before, and everyone was saying to me, "Oh, you're really nervous. You're really nervous." And I was like. Well, no, I'm not actually. I'm looking forward to it as a challenge more than anything. Because I also didn't think, oh, it's going to be my job in the future. I just thought, this is one day off from doing the films. I'm going on to the Rain Kelly show, but I'll go back to the films tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? I didn't think yeah. of it as a career move at that point. But what I love about doing makeovers on normal people uh, is that, like you say, none of us, we've all got bits of our body that is, aren't quite right or we yeah. don't think are very... And it's just the joy of seeing somebody... In a, having had a makeover or having just taken them shopping for some new clothes to introduce, you, it's just joyful to see somebody so happy with what they're wearing. Yeah, and and going back to what you say, per, this word perfect, we all know, mm. I mean, I think perfect isn't actually perfect. I love real human people who look just gorgeous and lovely yes. and comfortable yeah. and happy. So anyway, so then, so, okay, so this carried on, but then you started doing Granada Breeze Live, which then yes. led to so, this so morning. Then, then what happened was I did the Rain Kelly show and um, I got a call. I can't remember who he was even rang me about that. And it was a Granada Breeze Lifetime. It was a thing that went on next door to Coronation Street in Manchester. And it was on every day. So I only ever did Thursdays. And Nadine Baggett from um, Hello Magazine was the beauty editor. And me and Wendy Ellsmore were the two fashion people. And at the same time, I was also doing a show called Style Challenge, which was on at nine o'clock in the morning. And it was where they had two friends... And the two friends got a makeover, but you didn't. They didn't see themselves till the end, and then they spun. You're too young to remember this. They no, spun the mirrors at the end of the at the end of the show. They spun the mirrors and they showed the makeover to the person. So they, right. they had and they had huge 
huge people on that, like Trevor Sorby and Charles Worthington. Yeah. And all the big, big names were all on that show. It was every morning at about nine o'clock. Did you ever have people who were like, oh, my God, I look awful? Uh, one, oh. one. It was, a celebrity. it wasn't on that show. It was on this morning. So we did a makeover. I don't know if I should say this. Okay, <laughs> Remember, I haven't got a big budget, uh, John, for the for no, the no, 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 no. Okay, so it was somebody when they were a child. They were a young boy, and they were a um, antique expert. And they used to run with Terry Wogan a lot. And then, as they grow older, they realised they were living in the wrong body, okay. and they wanted to become a lady. Okay. Right? So when she was then a lady, she then came on this morning to have a makeover. Okay. So we made her over and I thought she looked fantastic. And she just said, I hate all of this. <laughs> I would not wear this because it's high street, not designer. <gasps> but we also had, we did Anne Widdicombe once as well. And I thought she looked fantastic. And then in the break, <clears throat> she'd made Charles Wenton rebrush her hair back to how it was before we started. <laughs> yeah. So no, it's nothing. It's nothing offensive. Nobody, nobody stormed off or anything like that. But they're the two I can remember that stand out in my mind for people going. That's amazing. And am I allowed to say this, John? That I remember you telling <laughs> me. Gonna uh, I, I'm going to say. I'm going to say it anyway. Um, you told me the story that you would be saying that you're going down to London to be. Oh yes. So yes. And so somebody was watching you. Yes. So I was on Tomb Raider. <laughs> And I was doing fashion every on this morning, every Monday and Thursday. And um, as part of the job as a costume supervisor, you don't, you're not on set the whole time because there are people looking after, like Angelina had um, a lovely girl called Helen looking after her, dressing her and everything. So I could say, oh, I've just got to get to London to do this. I've just got to pop into London to do that. So every Monday and Thursday, I'd say, oh, I'm just shopping in London. Uh, and then and then I'll do the show and then go back to uh, Pinewood in the afternoon and carry on with the filming and everything. And it was only because Angelina stopped filming every Monday and Thursday if she was on to go into a Winnebago. And eventually they said, why do you always have to have a break at 11 o'clock in the morning? She said, oh, I'm going to go and see John. And they were like, who? And she said, oh, John, he's on telly every Monday and Thursday. And I got <laughs> so told off, really, really told off by the, by the management. I know, but what a good story. I know. It's worth it. So you stayed there for 10 years. And you're, yes. and, and actually, a full disclosure here, this is where we met because I was a runner on, at the time, GMTV and then we'd yeah. like do with L Lorraine and we met. Yeah. I always remember meeting you out on the South Bank. I remember there being mannequins. I think they kept falling over or something like that. And it was yeah. my job as the runner to keep picking <laughs> it all picking it all up. But so oh. that's where... Um, and I don't think I was even earning £12,000 a year then, if I'm honest with you. No. But, but um, we... Uh, yeah, so you stayed there for 10 years. So you, you obviously did love that. I absolutely adored it. Loved it. So what happened was, is I used to go and do my Mondays and Thursdays while I was doing the film. So that was during Tomb Raider. Then this morning said, we want to offer you a full-time contract. So you'll be on most days and you'll go out and do, um, you know, interviewing out in the field and doing red carpets and things like that. So I decided to take one year off the film industry. So I just finished Tomb Raider and I was about to start Die Another Day, Jack Pierce's last Bond film. So I said, right, I won't do Die Another Day, but I was due to start Love Actually a year later. They'd wow. already booked me to do Love Actually. Now, Love Actually, again, was done by the same Duncan Kenworthy who did Four Weddings and Notting Hill. So yeah. I was looking forward to going back to doing that one. Anyway, so I did a year completely away from the film industry. And then when that year was up, I got the call from uh, Duncan and the, the, the costume designer on... Um, I love actually saying so what date could you start and I was suddenly like 
oh, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to do this. So I had to turn them down and I just stayed at this morning then. That was my full-time job then. That's amazing. So you, so you loved it so much, you didn't work on Love Actually? No. Did you? Yes, that is the truth. That's the truth, yeah. I mean, did you, did you ever miss the film world? Did you ever wish you had gone back or did you definitely just love the television by this stage? I I love the television work. I absolutely love the television work, but... What I missed was the camaraderie because all the time on a film, you're part of a team, whether it's just your costume team or whether it's the whole of the creative team. Or you see, because I could walk around a Bond film, the set of a Bond film, there'd be a thousand people on a Bond film. I could go into the construction and say hello to all the big lads making all the scenery and everything like that. I could go into the lighting department and chat to them. I could go to the art department and chat to them. It was a real, for me, it was a real social thing. So then when you suddenly become a presenter on the telly it's just you you still have your team of people but it's a different kind of dynamic it's suddenly like they're not working for you but they're working as your team sort of thing and you're kind of revered as being the person on the telly so sometimes it wasn't lonely but sometimes it'd be like oh i just want to be part of a team but my clairvoyant who's told me so much about my life says i'm going to do another film so i don't know quite where that's going to fit in or how that's going to fit in oh we're going to have to keep Mm. you posted on that one so then let's um move on then to now I'm going to give you a next, next chapter because you do have another chapter. So, I mean, you've you've probably had enough chapters, but no, you had another one. So you then had a secret meeting and this led to you becoming, this is sort of something totally different, but also combining everything. You became the face of the sewing quarter. Yes. So let me explain how that happened. So what happened was, is when I came off this morning, uh, I I was approached by a, a, a shopping channel that sold high-end jewellery and they wanted me basically they had me on as a guest one week and they sold more in the two hours I was on just as the guest than they did do normally so they offered me a job as a presenter on the channel and I was very oh shopping channels I don't think so anyway I took it I took the job because it paid so well and loved it so I sold jewellery then they left London and moved up to Leamington Spa so I kind of stopped being with them and then I left London myself and moved up here to to Warwickshire and everything and they were in Leamington Spa so I went back and worked with them for a little while and then I was also I also worked with Paver Shoes I also filmed for Paver Shoes and I was up in York in my hotel room in the freezing cold and I got a call saying uh from a, a very dodgy geezer called Tomo who's a friend of mine and he went here here mate you can do sewing can't you and I said yeah and he went right look you've got a meeting on Thursday at 10 o'clock you have to be in this place this time they'll send you an NDA a non-disclosure agreement whatever it's called which you have to sign so I got sent a non-disclosure agreement. didn't say anything about what the job was but it, it was called Project Tabitha and I was like, oh, I'm going to Spain. I'm going to do nightclubbing, a program about nightclubbing in Spain. Anyway, I went for my meeting and went into the room and it was just a room full of bolts of fabric and threads and everything like that. And it was uh, to launch the sewing quarter, which is also a shopping channel, but it was all to do with sewing and quilting and dressmaking and toy making and all sorts of things like that. So not Ibiza, but it took you back to kind of, it took you back to the roots, really, didn't it? Of what you loved, totally. with, of making the costumes, the sewing, the fabrics, everything you love yeah. about it. So you loved it, and you were doing that. You were doing that every day, weren't you? For the um... almost, almost every day, yeah, almost every day. So it was full on. It was full on, and then so that yes. lasted for three years. But then that shut down, and then yes, most yeah. people then would say, "Look, do you know what? You've you kind of, to be honest with you, John, you've ticked all the boxes, haven't you? You've done Hollywood, you've done national television, you've done, you presented your own show, but you decided no, there's absolutely no way you're stopping. You decided no. to set up 
your own um your own channel as such and you've got your john scott show and you've got your john scott sewing world yeah so so how that happened was when sewing quarter decided to shut down which was such a sad i loved that job i absolutely adored that job we had so many viewers who kind of went into this very strange mourning phase i i was the same i was kind of like oh what am I going to do without it sort of thing? So I set up just a website called the John Scott Sewing World, which was meant to be just a community of all the ladies and gentlemen who love sewing. And they love sharing their pictures. They love telling stories. It was just going to be, it wasn't making any money. It was a completely free thing, but it was just to keep the community together, as it were. Anyway, through those and through some Facebook Lives that I did, we decided that wouldn't it be a good idea to carry on doing what we did at Sewing Quarter but without the selling. So I launched the John Scott show so that people could see their favorite sewers and quilters and dressmakers, and they will still do a demonstration and we'll sit and chat and everything, but there's no selling as it were. That's amazing. And so now you've got, you know, cause I've seen and then the impact that you're having on people. So you've got like 30,000 subscribers to your newsletter. You've got this huge community now and you all have this love of sewing. And, yes. but yet you're all clearly great friends. Yes, it's the strangest thing. It's such a lovely community. And it goes back to, remember I said, when I left the films and went to this morning, I kind of felt that I was, there's this community that anybody in the community, because now I'm, I'm now at Sewing Street, which is, a, is like a sewing quarter, but just run by a different company. The community is fantastic. So on their fans page or on my page, somebody only has to write, oh, my husband was made redundant or I've been a bit poorly. And the way people rally round. When I first started at Sewing Quarter, one of the sewers said to me, you will never know a community like the sewing community. And it's so true. It really is true. And as you say, a lot of them have become friends now. So when we do like, when we're allowed to do Festival of Quilts and all these different huge uh, exhibitions and events when before COVID came, everyone would, we'd have queues miles long of people wanting to meet us and come and say hello and things like that. It's just a brilliant, brilliant place to be. Why do you think people love sewing so much? I think, it's, especially at the moment, it's fantastic for mindfulness. Apart from the fact you make something and at the end of it, you've got something to either keep or give away. It's also when you start sewing, whatever troubles you have in your life, whilst you're doing that sewing, the troubles aren't there anymore. So all during the pandemic, the amount of people who said that sewing has saved them, you know, even if it, it depends, you could make something that takes two hours, a little table run that takes a couple of hours, or a huge quilt that takes six months. It's literally their go-to happy place. Mm. And so they're doing the sewing at the same time chatting and you're chatting about all other things. You're talking about yes. books. You're talking yeah. about just everything. So it's like oh, you're yeah. so what not on your own. My show, rather than it just being on sewing, we decided to do topics of other topics that we knew my sewing ladies and gentlemen liked. So we do baking mm. and we do lifestyle. And my brother does an Ask Dr. Mike section on it now. So if they've got any medical problems, they can message in and he'll record an answer for them. And we, like I say, we have novelists and everything like that coming in that's amazing and for people to if they want to join up they subscribe don't they yeah so basically there's two things there's john scott saying world which is a free website where they get them newsletters and things like that but then the john scott show is a subscription channel so it works out at a pound an hour that's how much it, 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 your show costs so each show when you pay your subscription each show costs two pounds so they get two hours so it's like a pound an hour if i could do the whole thing for free i would do um 
but at the moment I've got to you know I can't afford to because I haven't got that much money no no but also it goes back I mean first of all can we just point out so that brother the your the, the doctor brother presumably he's the one now that you worked with and then now he's on your show so it's all come yes. around it goes yeah. to show doesn't it this whole yeah. school business it comes you know it all comes good in the end but also oh, yes, so totally. so so if so, so if someone's listened to this now and we're going to move on to your acknowledgements but just so do you feel that you're doing something basically that you love? Now you've worked in these hugely what's perceived as glamorous worlds, te- television, film, there's nothing more glamorous than Hollywood film. But then to be doing something now that is your own business, that your own you've got control of, that you're working doing something you love and you're working with people who you've got a real connection with, you know, how does that compare? Can sort of nothing can beat that really, can it? Uh, the thing is, the thing is, I'm a true believer in our paths are already mapped out for us. So, yes, people go to me, oh, what are you doing working in a warehouse in Redditch, which is where the, the sewing street comes from? When before you were in Hollywood or, you know, Morocco or, you know, Ethiopia or Thailand or all these amazing locations. The thing, the thing is, first of all, yes that part of my life I did mix with the stars I went out for dinner with the stars and then I did this morning and carried on all that big social lots of parties and everything like that now my life's a lot lot quieter but I do believe that it's where I'm meant to be at this time now I I still all my friends I'm of a certain age now like on television I'm 40 but in real life I had my 60th birthday during the lockdown and everything well happy birthday so many of my friends like oh we've bought a house in France and we're gonna retire I don't want to retire I know that I've got more there's more challenges to come the day I don't have a challenge to do will be the day I die basically no I can understand that so moving on to that so for this to for our to be continued what can uh, when I come back to you what what would you like to do next well it's really really weird right because um, I'm a true believer in like clairvoyancy and things like that. And every time I've had a reading, the, the readers have all said to me, oh, you should be doing this, not me. You're far more psychic. You're far more in tune than I am. I don't think I am. I think, uh, well, I might have the skill, but I don't know how to use it sort of thing. I don't know if that's where it's going to take me. In my brain, I'd like that. In my mind, I'd like that to be the next thing. But I don't know. I will go with, I don't have any fixed ambitions or fixed plans i know some people have got in five years i'm going to be here and then in 10 years i'm going to be doing this and 15 years i'm going to be doing that i had planned to be very rich and very kind of living a life of luxury by the time i was 40 and obviously that was just a pipe dream sort of thing but i don't know where the next thing is i it'll be where and, and it's just this thing about it's presented to you like the this morning thing was presented to me the shopping channels were presented to me so uh, you, you can't will it in quicker when the time is right something will happen I'll get a phone call I'll get a letter or I'll see something on the telly and think oh I'd quite like to do that and that's when I'll move on to that thing you've always got to remember that no decision is the wrong decision so mm-hmm. whatever decision you make that's the right decision for your life I think you're living a life of luxury just on the outside looking in but still so to go, <laughs> go, carrying on with the acknowledgements so who would you say are the people or that you have really helped you, who have really inspired you and encouraged you all throughout this? It's weird, isn't it? It's people who have faith in you, really. So, like, I, when I was that 13-year-old chubby boy at school who thought I wasn't going anywhere, there was a maths teacher called Mrs Gilmore and an English teacher called Mrs Carmen who both could see something that I couldn't see and both not willed me or pushed me but encouraged me to be better at what I was doing. And then, of course, when I went to uh, um, Bretton Hall, I had friends that, that were helping there. And then when I went to Wimbledon, 
I had people like Dulcie and Fiona, who I sat next to, who could also, and I couldn't. And I wouldn't have got through week one without people. I just believe that people are sent to help you along the way. And that's why I like to pay back because there are youngsters now, or not even youngsters, but other people now going, oh, I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd done this. I'm like, go for it. See if you can fit it in. Don't, you know, I want to be as helpful to them as people were to me as I was going. So then, of course, then when I got into the film industry, people like Mary Richards, who had faith in me and gave me my first film job, and then carried on giving me film jobs all the time I was there. You know what I mean? And then it's just people who have who've helped and I just think it's a nurturing thing and I think we're all here we should all help each other to get to it it sounds a bit mamby pamby but I just think you get back what you pay into it obviously so much of what this is all about if you're going to be brave enough to try something new it's all about confidence now you mentioned about when you want you were nervous about sort of going freelance rather than having a secure job but can you think of a time where you really struggled my job I love my job so much that it is the number one thing in my life, which is where I had an issue during um, during lockdown, is because I, in the first lockdown, I couldn't do my job. Mm. So even though I'd filled my time with doing other things, I kind of, the fact that they'd taken my job away from me was the worst thing for my mindset ever. So other people have, you know, their partner or other things in life to keep them going. My job is, I've realised, my number one thing that keeps me going. So I love, even though I could be, like, my friend Liz is a publisher for Immediate Media, a huge, huge publisher, and she sees me doing award ceremonies and things like that, and she goes, don't you get nervous? Mm. Or before I go on air on the television, don't you get nervous? I get nervous, but it's an exciting nervous it's not a i can't do this nervous but then you send send me off to some social occasion i'll be at home thinking i can't wear this can't wear that can't do this don't want to go don't want to be there and when i get there i'm absolutely fine but it's the apprehension is worse than the actual um, Mm. event itself while i've got you here john can i just ask you know so many people including myself sometimes you know you just uh, I, I'm going to say women, but it's men as well. You like in terms of clothes, you've had so much experience in clothes and dressing people and all different types of people. You know, mm-hmm. what is your advice when people do feel a bit rubbish? And you're like, do you know what? I'm just feeling a bit lost at the moment. I kind of don't feel like myself. I'm not looking myself. You know, especially at the moment in the lockdown. What is your advice now? Oh, buy elasticated waist in the lockdown. <laughs> um, Right, okay, so if you, I've got a dressing room. I'm lucky I've got a dressing room. In one of my bedrooms, I've tended to a dressing room. I have two huge rails of clothes. I only wear, and we're all the same, we only ever wear 20% of the clothes that are on our rail. So mm. I think the first thing you need to do, and this is why I sometimes, well, I don't do it so much now, but I used to. I used to offer a service where I'd go into somebody's house. So say I came to your house, right? We would go into your wardrobe and you would try every single piece of clothing on in your wardrobe with me standing there. And I go, why do you wear this? Where do you wear this? When do you wear this? Most of the time you go, oh, I haven't worn this since my first daughter was born. Oh, I haven't worn this since I went to that wedding or whatever. So you go through the whole wardrobe or if you look on the rail, half the things don't fit us anymore. And it's really depressing when you have a huge rail. and half. So take all of that stuff out and end up with a small capsule wardrobe and then add bits of colour into it. So say you've got two skirts that work, two blouses that work, a jacket that works, a pair of trousers, a pair of jeans. Then you fill in the spaces with what you need and you'll be amazed at what you can create from there. It's no good. You need a best friend who, if you say to them, does my bum look big in this? And they go, yes, don't buy that. And people think sometimes I'm quite, uh, not aggressive, but 
a bit upfront with saying, oh, you can't wear that, you can't wear that. I'm not saying it because it's not fashionable or it's not this, because anybody can wear what they want to wear. Like people say, oh, ladies over 40 shouldn't wear a miniskirt. Of course you can wear a miniskirt, but it's the way you wear it and what you wear it with, you know what I mean? So you have to feel good in what you're wearing. It doesn't have to be the highest, of, it doesn't have to be what the trend is. It could be whatever you want it to be. But if you feel good stepping out of your house, you will exude more confidence as you leave your house so just to finish off so your advice anyone listening to this you you, you know you've you've jumped ship and done so many different things throughout your life so far and we've still got a, a big old chapter to go yeah what is your advice to someone listen to it? so you know i'm just trying to think you might be thinking they might be thinking look it's okay he's you know he's confident he's had all these experiences he's oh. had all these great offers coming to him you know what about me i'm just here i'm walking my dog and i don't know you know, I don't know where to even begin. Yes. What would you say to that person and somebody who doesn't even have an idea of what they'd like no, to do? Right. What would you say to them? Enjoy. You just said walking your dog, right? You could set up, if you want to, if you're looking at business, a dog walking business because you love walking, you love dogs. So the first step is offer to take people's dogs for walks. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, I've been lucky. I've worked in, like you say, showbiz, films, TV, theatre. Yes, it looks very glamorous. It's hard work. And also when you're on location on a film, you don't, yes, you wake up in a beautiful Moroccan hotel, but then you go and do a 17-hour day and you've got to wash dirty pants at the end of it and have to cope with stuntmen's socks and all that sort of thing. It's not 100% glamour the whole time. You're not swanning around like a Hollywood star. You're there to work and you work blooming hard. And that's why my career was so successful, I think, because I actually sacrificed an awful lot of other things to make my career work. Because I wanted to. My one mantra in life is don't be anywhere you don't want to be. That, it's as simple as that. And also learn to say no. If somebody asks you to do something and you think, oh, I've got to say yes. I've got to... So if you say no straight away, if you don't want to do something, they might go, oh, but that's it over. If you say, if somebody says to you, oh, John, could you do this for me? You go, oh, yeah, of course I will. And then you let it, oh, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish I, oh, how am I going to do it? And you let it, it creates so much anxiety within that it would have been so much easier on the first day to go, no, no, thank you. I can't do that. Or if somebody invites you somewhere, you go, oh, no, I'm all right. Thank you. You can make up an excuse. You don't have to say, no, I don't want to come. But if somebody invites me somewhere I don't want to go, don't go. Because all the angst of leading from that moment up to having to physically go creates so much stress. And the lead that what we need now is less stress in our life, less anxiety in our life, isn't it? And talk to people. If you've got something like that's why my Facebook lives are so good. We start off talking about sewing, but then we end up talking about all sorts of things because we're all in the same we're all in the same boat really we've all got the anxiety yes people look at me and think we're so confident they don't see me when i'm like a gibbering wreck at home thinking i'm rubbish at everything and i'm old and fat and ugly and think oh i'm getting very personal now but you know what i mean it's like we all have those doubts we all have those fears i just love my job so much that i go to work and it's a joy to go to work also open your mind open your mind and i know a lot of people don't like this asking the universe thing if it's meant to happen, just try it. Just try it. As long as it doesn't do anyone any harm or doesn't do you any harm, just try it. John Scott, you've been amazing. I could talk all day. And please come back for the sequel. Yes, I will. Definitely. Definitely. So there you are, John Scott. He is rather fabulous, don't you agree? I love chatting with him and I can see why so many others do too. Now, I don't know about you, I took from our chat, just give it a go. You never know where it will take you, who you might meet, or more still, you might be watching. 
It made me feel a little better. John has the odd wobble too. I mean, don't we all? I really do. I really, really do. Remember though, we are all doing this together. John thinks you can do it and I do too. Now, to find out more about John and see his amazing show, you can go to www.johnscottsewingworld.com. You can get in touch with me at elliebarkerwrites.com where I can keep you up to date with my next chapter, if you want to, of course. And yes, I know everyone says this, but if you don't mind rating and reviewing this episode, that would be great. Now, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for giving us your time. Another episode is on its way. But in the meantime, lots and lots of luck. If you are starting your next chapter, go on, you can do it one little step. Speak soon. <laughs>